Welcome to What Makes Up Your Mind, updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health from the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. This is your invitation to meet the faculty dedicated to understanding our most complex organ, committed to curing mental illness, and inspired to help create a healthier, thriving world. Thank you for joining us again on What Makes Up Your Mind. I'm Jane McMillan. Today we're talking about psychosis. That can be kind of a startling term. The severity of symptoms on the continuum can range from intrusive thoughts or bothersome voices to perhaps hallucinations, maybe to conditions like schizophrenia. Now, while the stigma of some mental health conditions like depression and anxiety has lessened, there's still a good deal of misunderstanding about psychosis and treatment available. And that's why we've asked Dr. Jacob Ballin to join us. Dr. Ballin is the co-director of the Inspire Clinic at Stanford. It offers recovery-oriented care for those experiencing early psychosis. Now, the term recovery-oriented is very important in the mission of Inspire Clinic. It has the goal of making the condition of psychosis manageable so individuals can lead normal, fulfilled lives. Now, Inspire does this through offering medication management, cognitive behavioral therapy, some social work support, vocational and educational support, and clinical trials. Dr. Ballin's and Inspire Clinic's message is a positive and a hopeful one, and we're sure you're going to want to hear it. Dr. Jacob Ballin, it's really great to have you here, and I appreciate your time. Oh, yeah, it's my pleasure. Happy to, happy to be here. You know, we talk a lot in mental health about stigma, and we're, we've gotten used to in our conversations uh, in media and just in general talking about anxiety and talking about depression and talking about bipolar uh, disease and PTSD. And But for a lot of people, it, there's still something scary about the word psychosis, and there's something really scary about the term schizophrenia. Yeah. So could we start with you just explaining maybe on the spectrum of mental disorders, people can live perfectly normal lives while coping and treating yeah. all of this whole array of mental disorders. Right. And I think that's actually one of the most important places to start, which is to say that none of these diagnoses or descriptions of uh, experiences should be considered an endpoint for, for somebody, right? And so hopefully we, we use diagnosis and we use descriptive language as a way to communicate to clinicians what, what we're seeing and so that we can have a shared language, but also to communicate to the public and, and to the people who are experiencing things that we understand uh, that what somebody might be going through is something that we've seen before, that, uh, that we have ideas of how to help and that we can uh, partner together on trying to figure out ways to get people back on track with, with their goals. So I think that's a, an important place to sort of frame the conversation for, for where we are. Okay. But I, I, I agree. I think there is um, – psychosis is a word that is uh, a, a difficult one for many people. Um, one of the challenges with psychosis is that it sounds like, um, like psychopathy. And so there's a misconception of psychosis and psychopath, that those are the mm. same thing. And, and they're, they're different, um, but, it, but it, it can sometimes lead to some confusion that, that psychosis is uh, inherently associated with violence um, and that people with, with psychosis are violent. And that, that would be a misconception. Uh, rather, 
psychosis is something that can actually, the symptom that can be associated with almost any psychiatric condition. Um, and so it isn't a diagnosis in, of a, in and of itself in the same way that sadness is a symptom of depression. It is not in and of itself a psychiatric diagnosis. Psychosis is a symptom that can be a symptom of schizophrenia. It can be a symptom that's seen in bipolar disease. It can be a symptom that's seen with depression. It can be a symptom that's seen with PTSD. It can, it can associate with a lot of different things, and it helps to understand the overall context as far as what is the right treatment going to be then. What is psychosis? How would you describe it? Yeah. Well, psychosis is, a, is um, it's in, often described as kind of a loss of touch with reality. Right, and so one of the things that often uh, is associated with that is things like hallucinations, um, which are sensory experiences that don't have uh, an identified source. Um, most common with the folks that I work with are auditory hallucinations, where people hear voices. Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally, people will see things or have visual hallucinations, but you can actually have a hallucination um, in any of the sensory domains. And so uh, sometimes that can highlight uh, something that may be more neurological uh, versus something that is uh, a psychiatric symptom. So it's helpful to really understand exactly what a person is experiencing as best as they can describe it um, because it, it can shed some light into different directions we might want to go with understanding mm-hmm. how to get to the right diagnosis ultimately. But, uh, but so, so that can be one part of it is hallucinations. There also are things like delusions that we see where people have uh, – beliefs about the world that aren't shared widely, you know, with other people. And so it can be very difficult to describe exactly what it means to be a delusion because I think, especially in this day and age where we have a hard time deciding what are actual facts, uh, to be able to say with absolute certainty that what somebody believes is not actually true. But in some cases, it, it, can, it, it can fit certain patterns that are, that are very improbable, is, is a word I often use, where people often feel like they're being watched or followed in a very characteristic kind of a way. We classically think of people saying that they're being followed by the government or a government agency. But it, it can be the subjective sense of being being watched that can actually lend itself to a number of the other symptoms. Um, and you can imagine that it would be very hard to go through the world feeling like somebody is constantly watching you. It's a, it's a lack of, of privacy. That can extend to even people's thoughts. They can feel like their thoughts are being watched um, or can be heard out loud. In ways that that you know violate what you would think is your your most inner sanctum of your own your own mind yes. is being ex- expressed in a way that other people can hear, um, and so you can also imagine how people who might be experiencing these things um, that are kind of sensory inputs or idea inputs that aren't what other people are able to um, appreciate, and they make decisions based on these inputs in ways that are internally logical based on what they're experiencing often but are illogical because the inputs that they're getting are not mm-hmm. not accurate. I see. And so it can make for people to do very bizarre behavior that if you understand what their thought process is, that that behavior suddenly makes some sense, even if it's not necessarily very adaptive. Um, you know, it might cause people to move from city to city uh, frequently and, and not ever be able to really set roots in a place. Well, that makes sense if you feel like somebody's watching you and following you in every city that you go to and you're receiving messages in your head that maybe there's a safer place to be or that you have to leave. And so that can, can be very destabilizing for a person, but also that at least there's a, there's a logic to what they're making as a decision. So it's, I think, important also to recognize this idea that people may be making what seem like uh, unwise decisions. 
but that, it, that to understand where, where a person is coming from. It makes sense to them. Yeah, well, it makes sense to them. And it doesn't mean that they should be making those decisions or that it's safe to do that or that we need, you know, not to think about what are some ways to help a person to be able to make better decisions. But at the same time, to understand that people with psychosis exist in the world and understand a lot of what's going on around them, even if there are some areas where they are impaired. So, for example, I have people who come to see me who will take two or three different buses to get to to Stanford, right? Well, that takes a lot of planning, of an intricate knowledge of the bus and train system on how to make that work. Um, and and that requires really being in the world. It no, requires knowing what day the appointment is, how early to leave, um, and uh, how to really navigate uh, a complex system. At the same time, that person also is coming to see me perhaps because they are experiencing voices or experiencing other delusions that are, are not seemingly as, as logical. And so they can, they can simultaneously um, sort of exist in these, in these two uh, kind of almost competing uh, realities in mm-hmm. a way. And it's important to try to help folks to understand when the reality that they're experiencing doesn't match with what uh, everybody else would think is what's true because then uh, that's where they can get themselves into some trouble. And you know, I'm asking these questions based on uh, – from the perspective of someone who may encounter someone with these behaviors. Mm-hmm. Uh, could be a homeless person, and we know that so many of the homeless are dealing with mm-hmm. mental illnesses that are untreated. But it could be somebody in our family or somebody uh, who's the friend of a friend. Or And if we're not comfortable with understanding what's going on, that fear factor mm-hmm. does come into play and makes it – tougher for that person to get help, but also for us to engage as humans. Right. Well, and and, and it can be really tricky because if you are encountering somebody on the street who clearly is responding to auditory hallucinations, that that might not be the best moment to engage with that person, right? Um, It is possible that they may be, you know, feeling a certain amount of threat. Uh, That's not, they're they're not in their best moment at that point and they do need need specific help and that, that might not be the right time to sort of a, a approach somebody, right? But you can imagine much in the same way that if you were on the phone and you were in the midst of an argument with somebody uh, and somebody came to approach you and said, can I help you? Like you might not really be in the right mood and frame of mind right, to yes. like take that help. That doesn't mean we don't want to help overall, but it's, it's important to recognize like when is, when is it appropriate to approach somebody and when is it not? Um, that doesn't mean you don't necessarily think about other ways to maybe help that person get some help, you know, if they're agitated on the street. Uh, Hopefully that there's there's you know a system in place in which somebody can come and offer them some help and maybe help get them to uh, a place for treatment um, and and begin the process of kind of calming down a little bit. But it is important to to, to maintain some safety. Yeah, but this must add to the stigma that is constantly um, a battle for medical. Uh, mental health right. professionals and for people in general to try to get over this idea of fear and this idea of because these are yeah. manifest these what we're talking about the mm-hmm. psychoses are manifested more obviously than perhaps an anxiety or a depression or something else. But also, it's important to think about what what is the image that you're seeing when you're seeing that person or, or a few people that are on the street. Mm-hmm. You're seeing a very small number of people who experience psychosis. It, it happens that that stands out in a way that. Um, that you notice, that you remember. If, if there is, if a person is agitated on the street, it is going to make you probably have a fear response. That's likely to really encode in some memory. And so now you've decided almost, 
that that's what psychosis looks like. But if you were to spend time in my clinic, you would see that there are people who experience psychosis who are also working in companies, you know, throughout Silicon Valley, who are uh, at all levels of the university, who if you walked past them at Stanford Shopping Center, you wouldn't think twice about it. Um, and so you have you don't you don't encode that as oh well that's also psychosis right much in the same way we talk about the homeless pro- problem uh, for folks which is that you see people who were sort of obviously homeless on the street and it hides the fact that there's a lot of people who were um, you know sort of unstably housed yes. but you don't you don't see those folks and so the numbers can be a lot larger in many ways mm-hmm. of people who experience things but that also um, that you're not getting a representative sample always. Yeah. And I think it, that's the challenge is that when when somebody with psychosis commits a violent act, it reinforces the preconceived idea that psychosis is inherently associated with violence. And it, it isn't to say that people with psychosis who are responding to voices that are telling them to do certain things potentially, that there aren't people out there who, who do things that are violent, right, in the, in the midst of hearing voices. It, it, it is something that one has to be careful about. And yet, that is the minority of the people who experience psychosis, that they live that way and, and, and are, you know, at that imminent risk all the time. And so it, it, it can be a challenge to change public perception when it's much easier to walk down the street or read a newspaper article and get a sense of, well, this, is, this confirms my, my, my idea. Exactly. Let's talk about the clinic. I love the name, Inspire. Yeah. Let's talk about what happens when somebody comes to you and they're experiencing these things. Is it... Uh, is it all uh, medication? Is it talk therapy or what's the right. protocol? We, well, we try. So I think the, the fundamental premise in the Inspire Clinic is that we are there to try to help pe- support people in um, getting on track with their goals. And so th- when a person comes into the Inspire Clinic, they generally see um, one of the psychiatrists first. But, you know, it's not always the case. Some people are uh, they're interested in, in treatment, but but you know, it doesn't make sense to them to see a psychiatrist right away. And so we will do what we can to try to engage them. That uh, that might mean working with the family. It might mean working. We have uh, social workers in the clinic. And so sometimes that uh, is a better route for in- initial engagement. We also have uh, psychologists in the clinic. And sometimes that's a better route for initial engagement to, to have more of a conversation. Um, but we do, we do provide medication uh, as a psychiatrist. That's part of my role is to help with prescribing medication, making sure that the medication is is not so um, heavily dosed that a person can't function in their life, and yet also balance it to make sure that people are getting the most out of the medication that they're taking, um, and and to make sure that, that taking medication is consistent with uh, a, achieving a goal, right? That it, medications get approved because they help reduce symptoms, but it turns out that simply reducing symptoms doesn't help people to stay on track with their goals. You, it requires really paying attention to their overall system. Reducing symptoms helps, but it is not sufficient to getting somebody a job or getting somebody to be able to return back to school. So we have to engage with the family. We have to um, try to really emphasize the importance of following through with what a person uh, is, is interested in, in doing with their life and, and, and making sure that they also know that we think they can do a lot of things, that we, we have optimism uh, for them. And that we feel like they, with you know, with the right support, can achieve a lot of things that maybe they, uh, when they first get a diagnosis, feel like they're being told they can't. I see. What is happening in the brain when we're talking about, let's say, schizophrenia? Because I think when the lay person thinks about psychosis, they might think about 
schizophrenia. So what is happening in the brain that well, causes this? I, I'd like to be able to tell you, um, but there are lots and lots of people who are trying to figure that out. Yeah. I think that the, the reason it's so hard is that there are a lot of different ways, let's say, that we can help model psychosis either in an, in an animal or even in humans by uh, giving people certain drugs, let's say amphetamines or PCP, um, and it can cause a psychotic experience. But those, those drugs work through different mechanisms. So we sometimes think about neurotransmitters or the chemicals in the brain that, that help kind of turn on or turn off different neurons mm-hmm. and, and can, can cause you know, different parts of the brain to be active or not active. And so um, for a long time, we thought of schizophrenia as really being related to the neurotransmitter dopamine. Well, that's an insufficient story. Um, and it turns out that you can cause uh, schizophrenia-like symptoms by giving somebody uh, PCP, which, which works through glutamate. And so there's a number of different neurotransmitters. And actually, neurotransmitters may be kind of a final common pathway, and there may be more neurocircuitry involved. There may be, it may be neurotransmitters, but it might not necessarily be that it's because there's a flood of neurotransmitter, you know, that's hitting a bunch of neurons in a certain part of the brain. It may actually be about how these are regulated, how, how um, fast the neurons are transmitting. There's a lot of different things that could be related. And, and what makes it the most complicated is that it's probably different between person A and person B. And so not everybody who experiences schizophrenia is experiencing exactly the same, uh, let's say, neurotransmitter or circuit uh, that issue that somebody else is. Um, not to mention that it's hard to know how to quantify uh, life experience, trauma. Sure. And, how, and, and not to say that those things also don't perhaps change the brain, but they can cause wide variance. And so that becomes a challenge because, of course, you, you want to be able to replicate what you find. And if, a, if di- two different people are experiencing similar symptoms of psychosis but are actually experiencing different brain processes, have different genetic uh, signatures, and you may not actually be able to replicate uh, a treatment or a medication or science finding that you find in one person with the next person. Another, yeah. And so we don't actually really know all of the different routes that, that can lead to psychosis. That becomes a real issue because as we develop drugs that are more and more targeted to very specific um, you know, very specific drug targets, and we test them in anybody with psychosis without necessarily having a reason to believe that this particular drug that acts in this particular way will help this particular person. But we give it to, if we give it to all comers, then we actually dilute our research findings, and it can be hard to to move the field forward with with better personalized, more targeted drugs, uh, or or other treatments. Um, in fact, we often try to talk about how in the Inspire Clinic we we do personalized medicine. Because we try to personalize everybody's treatment towards their individual treatment goal. Um, but that doesn't mean that we are personalizing medicine in this sort of genetic, you know, psychopharmacological gen- kind yeah. of way. We are just making sure that people are attuned in their, in their talk and in their goals to uh, what it is that's important to them. We're not trying to put everybody back in school or everybody into a job or um, – but we want to see what, what resonates with an individual. But, but that's about as personalized as we can get because uh, we don't actually know what's really going on at that, at that individual level, especially much less at a, on a group level. There have been so many technological advances in ways to look into the brain in, in recent years. Is that helpful? Are you able to use any of those tools 
uh, to look for? Is, is there a place in the brain where schizophrenia happens? I think it's, I mean, there are places in the brain that, that, that do light up uh, with psychosis, but it doesn't mean that there's a, I don't think of it being a place in the brain where, where schizophrenia happens. Okay. Um, and so there are areas in the striatum that, uh, that can be shown to be uh, particularly uh, active with dopamine and overactive um, and have increased receptor occupancy and, and that that can be related to psychosis. But it's hard for me to believe that that happens for every single person with psychosis. And so, um, so it's tricky. There's a real tension because on the one hand, it, it is easy to say, well, this must be a, a purely brain disease, right? And in fact, we should be able to diagnose schizophrenia without hearing what a person says or thinking about what they've said. Like on that, there's that, you know, there's that sort of idea that, well, if there is a brain dysfunction, then you should be able to scan it or somehow ascertain it uh, with any of the, you know, we have so many different ways of looking at things now. But that just isn't how it goes. And, and in fact, there are people who sometimes will offer up uh, that they can make a diagnosis or, or recommend treatment based simply on a brain scan. And, and that's not accurate. And so uh, it's concerning because some people will spend a lot of money seeking out these kinds of scans based on a, on a very logical hope that, you know, we have so much science and technology, we should be able to do this. But it's, but it's just not there. And so same thing with doing a genetic test. There isn't a genetic test that you can do that will say what you have. Mm-hmm. You have to listen to people. You have to understand what people's experiences are. That's, that's where we are still. Um, and I don't think that that's a bad thing. Right? I think it is important to understand people's experience. If, if at some point all I needed was a brain scan to tell me somebody had schizophrenia, um, well, that, that I, don't, I don't think that would really make sense. Especially what if that person had the brain scan finding but, but wasn't experiencing some of the distress? Would, would that mean you should treat them? And, it, you know, I think it would be, it would be hard. So we, we do have to recognize that psychosis and, and, and schizophrenia, I, I believe, probably do involve the brain. Right? I think that would be hard to argue that they don't. But if we suggested that it was exclusively a brain thing and we neglected the uh, environmental contributions, whether it's uh, from trauma or mm-hmm. from, you know, other kind of life experiences or how, how people are, you know, able to explain themselves and, and you know, and, and are listened and are validated or invalidated with their experiences. If we ignored all of that part of it, I think we would be missing a um, – a, a very important aspect in and how we think about how to um, tailor treatments for people. Like the brain is a physical organ, uh, but I was fascinated when you and I first met mm-hmm. about your talking about the physicality, the connections physically mm-hmm. between, say, psychosis or schizophrenia and the body. And I know that study, mm-hmm. that kind of a study is in its early phases. But yeah. one of the things that you said was that why is there not a treadmill outside every psychiatrist's right. office? Talk a little bit yeah. more about that. Well, we're, we're in the midst of doing um, a replication of a large study that, that is funded by the NIMH, uh, looking at how to help enhance cognition, actually, in, schiz- in, in schizophrenia. It turns out that, that schizophrenia is not just a, uh, um, about hearing voices and, and feeling paranoid. There's, a, there's actually other very important symptoms. And one of the main symptoms that, that has actually really been difficult to actually help treat, the medications don't target it, are cognitive symptoms that people sometimes will have difficulty with what we call executive functioning, which means kind of keeping multiple tasks um, online. Mm-hmm. You know, you imagine a, a restaurant waiter who has to do three tables and remember to do something at each different table and getting back there and, you know, that can be a, that can be a hard thing or can have difficulty with verbal memory. 
So that same waiter also like taking somebody's order, uh, you know, might have a hard time with uh, remembering exactly what everybody sort of ordered and what, what order it was, you know. And, and so these are things, though, that it turns out that voices and, and um, paranoia, which are the you know, things that we often associate with schizophrenia the most closely are, and are important, are not actually the largest um, prognostic factors. And in fact, the cognitive symptoms and what were also called negative symptoms, which relate to difficulty with motivation and mm-hmm. connecting with other people, that those are the biggest areas that actually uh, impact overall prognosis. And it makes sense because you can imagine that a person, uh, first of all, the medications target the positive symptoms, the voices and the paranoia yes. better than, than they do the other symptoms. So we can already, we can lower the salience of those with medication. Um, but also people can develop techniques to, to sort of under, you know, um, know how to put them to the side. But with the cognitive symptoms and the sort of negative symptoms, difficulty with motivation, well, if you can't get yourself out of bed and out of the house, it's really hard to stay on track with your life. It's really, you know, if you don't, if you, if you can't follow along with what the teacher is saying, it can be really hard to succeed in school. And so it's important to figure out ways to help with enhancing that, whether it's through developing tools or in this case, using aerobic exercise or other forms of exercise to try to help with improving cognition to help people with better concentration skills and, and things like that uh, to be able to ultimately function. So uh, what we're doing is we're, we're working with, with partners at, uh, at Mount Sinai and University of North Carolina Medical College of Georgia on a, a replication of a study that I was a part of when I was at Columbia where we're ha- having people come in and exercising three times a week with a trainer. Um, we're measuring their uh, aerobic capacity at the beginning of the study, the middle of the study, and at the end of 12 weeks, which is the end of the study. We're also measuring what's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, which is um, associated with neuronal sprouting. It's a marker that also tends to correlate with improvements in cognition. Mm-hmm. Now, this is one of these studies that's like a little bit of like mom and apple pie because we actually know <laughs> that exercise helps improve cognition throughout the rest of the sort of, you know. Mainstream, yeah. yeah. And we know that um, – and, and we also know that, that exercise can help increase BDNF levels. But it hasn't really been shown in schizophrenia, and it's of such crucial importance in this population that it really is important that we, that we do this study. But, but what does it mean? It means that, um, especially if this study shows what we expect it to show, that, yeah, there should be a treadmill in every psychiatrist's waiting room, you know, essentially. We also did a survey of a number of people in our, in our clinic about a year ago, and uh, we happen to have a clinic here at Stanford that, that has a number of people who exercise, maybe actually in some ways almost as much as the general population or more, right? We have a lot of, a lot of people who are very motivated. Um, and, and we wanted to find out from these people who, who are kind of uh, – they're exercisers uh, at heart. Well, what do, you, what do you get from that? You know, what is it that, that – why do you do it? Um, and also for the people who don't exercise, well, you know, and how do you feel before you exercise or after you exercise? And for people who don't exercise and are more sedentary, kind of why, why do you live like that? And, and, you know, a lot of those people play many hours of video games. So tell us instead of how you feel before and after exercise, tell us how you feel before and after playing video games. Well, it turned out that when we asked, when we did this survey, we found out that people, um, actually got a lot of the same benefits from playing video games as they did from exercise. Hmm. So they felt more in control of their symptoms. They felt like they were, um, you know, sort of overall in, in a better frame of mind when they were either playing video games or, or exercising. 
Um, and it actually makes sense because uh, we also know that for a lot of people that uh, simply engaging in activity can help to, to make the voices get lessened, right? So they were engaging in an activity. They were distracting themselves from some of that. And it doesn't mean that that always works for everybody. But for a lot of people, it, it can help. Um, but what was striking was actually when we asked people how they felt afterwards, which was that people who felt um, – or people who did exercise felt more engaged, more open to experience, more kind of energized, as you might expect. And the people who played video games felt more demoralized. They hmm. felt a little bit – they felt more depleted and, and tired. So if you were thinking about, well, how would we apply this to the delivering treatment? Well, I would like to deliver treatment to somebody who's feeling more energized and more open to experience, especially if I'm offering a psychotherapy kind of intervention where I'm asking people to think about their experiences in perhaps different ways than they might automatically kind of come to. And so the conclusion that I draw from this small pilot study, this small survey is, well, yeah, maybe we should have everybody do 30 minutes of exercise before they, you know, come into the doctor's office and like, let's prime people for being in the right state of mind, uh, just even if that's the only exercise they get, even if we're not talking about cardiovascular health and, and neuronal sprouting, but just simply They're putting the people most, in the right frame of mind, yeah, that might just be an intervention in of itself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And of course, as people do exercise, exercise begets more exercise typically for people. And so maybe it also helps to establish a pattern. And much in the same way that we expect physicians now, including psychiatrists, to be uh, always counseling their patients on smoking. And we always counsel our patients on smoking, on to quit smoking, but also to ask about what kind of exercise are, are they getting because we want people to be active and engaged. There are so many downstream benefits for folks, whether it's helping people to get out of their house, giving people a reason to get up in the morning, giving people an a way to sort of start their routine in the day, uh, that, that exercise prov provides so many of these benefits. So we'll see what, what we find in this, in this study. We're still recruiting actively for that. So, um, you know, we're very interested in finding folks who are interested and willing and participating. Um, we compensate people for their time. And, you know, we, we really value the, the research subjects and who do help us with, with our clinical trials and our other studies. But this is one that, to me, uh, I'll be very surprised if it doesn't replicate what we found when we did the pilot study, which is that we found exactly what you would expect, yeah. that people, their cognition improved, their aerobic capacity improved. And actually, I think the best finding that we found when we did the pilot study in New York was that uh, we had about 80% attendance. So a lot of times people will say, oh, you know, this is a great idea, but, you know, we can't really expect people to come in three times a week. You know, I can't get anybody to exercise, much less, you know, how are you going to get people who have negative symptoms, who maybe have a hard time getting out of the house to, to do this? Like, this is not, it's not going to happen, you know. It's a great idea, but, like, it's just not going to work. Well, we had 80% attendance. Uh, when That's we did pretty study, stunning. Right? Yeah, and, I, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that we're, we're on pace to replicate that, too, if I had to guess from the people who've been in the study. And actually, the biggest reasons people didn't show up were Hurricane Sandy and Christmas, right? So those are pretty good reasons not to show up. And in fact, people in New York uh, commuted on average 40 minutes to come to us to do their exercise, right? So people people were they're looking for this. And, and I think actually one of the unintended uh, things that happened was that there actually also was a social connection of sorts uh, that – People with schizophrenia, again, have a, often have a difficulty with engaging socially with people. Again, have a difficulty in reading other people's external emotion. It can be hard to connect. But uh, when I was helping out at some points with doing the exercise, it became clear that even as people weren't always having extended conversations, they were checking in on each other. And they knew if someone had missed the last, last appointment or, or not. And they, you know, there was a positive peer pressure that developed. But that it also helped 
people to feel engaged and they had somebody who kind of knew that they were not coming and uh, and that that was also really, really important. And so um, one of the things that I certainly hope that someday we're able to do um, when maybe when the study is over at some point is to really develop uh, exercise or walking groups. We've talked about this for a while that it would be great if we could start having people that, that are just showing up to come, come and walk um, and uh, can be, can be more than that. But um, and so working on trying to help develop some of those within our clinic or, or to seed the idea to folks in the community. There are people who do this, right? And it's, it's, it's important. But um, one of the things that I, that, I, that I want for people to have is a sense of community. It can be very isolating if you, if you have a hard time leaving your house. Of course. And so um, – and that it's important for me, at least, to see that people are communicating with other people in, in their presence as opposed to sometimes when you isolate – at home, you can still communicate with people these days, right, over the internet, and that's great. But that isn't the same; it doesn't replace in in person communication, and 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 conviviality, and and being together, and so um, and and shared emotions, and so that you know, lots of ways that we're trying to help people to to build that kind of community. So the recruitment for this study, and for for anyone who's looking for more information, they may have someone in their life who may need this help, or they just might want to know more for themselves about how to better um, support somebody in their life mm-hmm, who's dealing mm-hmm. with this, uh, should they go to the Inspire Clinic website? Yep. Mm-hmm, okay. there, yep you'll, you'll see links on our website to all the different studies that we're doing. Um, it's sometimes a little bit of a complicated web address, so the best way to find it is uh, to just search for Inspire Clinic Stanford, and it'll pop right up. You can search for me as well. There's a link from, from my faculty page to the Inspire Clinic as well. Um, but, uh, yeah. And we'll put that, we'll put that in the notes about the program Excellent. on our website mm-hmm. so folks can find yeah, it more you'll easily. Find it. There's, we also have on our, our website, hopefully, is also a, a very helpful um, source of information, both for some local programs that exist as well as uh, we had a resident a couple of years back who uh, embarked on a, a project to find out what were the questions that were most on people's minds and that way we could answer them. And so she did a series of focus groups with both the patients in the clinic as well as family members to kind of come up with what are the like top 10 questions or so for an FAQ. So hopefully people will um, find that potentially helpful as well on our, on our website. I'm looking forward to you coming back because I know that there are other studies going on out there as we speak with connections from with schizophrenia and cancer or, mm-hmm. or uh, psychosis and um, insulin resistance. Yep. or So there's so much more to talk about, and I appreciate you being here, Dr. Ballin. Do, please do come back. Oh, it would be my pleasure to. Thank you Thank so much. Thank you so much. Dr. Jacob Ballin, co-director of the Inspire Clinic at Stanford, which offers all kinds of information and resources for you. Please check our podcast program notes for those links. Along with our gratitude to Dr. Ballin for his time, we appreciate yours as well and that you spend it with us on what makes up your mind. Please come back. I'm Jane McMillan. You've been listening to What Makes Up Your Mind. Updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health from the experts in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. For more information on this program and all of our transformational work, visit us at med.stanford.edu slash psychiatry. What Makes Up Your Mind? Updates from the Frontiers of Neuroscience, Well-Being, and Mental Health is a production of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine, a copyright of the Board of Trustees of Stanford University.